Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I am joined by an actor and director who you may recognize from his reoccurring role on HBO's Insecure or from his time on True Blood. Welcome in, Greg Daniel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. As I understand, you have a new feature film coming out that's very impactful and it's soon to be released called Seventh and Union. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about this film? Well, we just opened the LA International Latin International Film Festival on Friday. It's a beautiful film about this friendship, this bond that between, that happens, occurs between two very unlikely gentlemen, a Mexican ex-boxer and this older African-American man whose life is pretty much unraveled. Uh, boxing is the backdrop to the film and there's some great boxing scenes, but what's impactful is having this brown and black lead and them finding each other, some sort of bond, some sort of uh, some sort of almost being able to reclaim the confidence in each other. And it's uh, that I thought was impactful. Again, the brown and black communities come together in a way that you wouldn't expect forming a friendship that, again, you normally wouldn't expect. Yeah, well, that sounds really powerful and especially um, maybe very needed right now. As we know, there's a lot of racial tension going on. And historically, when we're looking at boxing matches, there's always been that underlying tension between a black fighter and a fighter of another race. That's and correct. we just saw a boxing match on Sunday with That's Logan correct. Paul taking on Floyd Mayweather. That had some racial underpinnings. So I guess what is it about boxing that really spoke to using it as a conduit for essentially kind of trying to minimize or address racial tension? Well, I got Tell you, it really wasn't the boxing, though. I love a good boxing film. I think the pugilism is a great sport. It was really the friendship. I think the backdrop, as I said earlier, is just boxing. But the real deal is the friendship that forms between these guys. Boxing is a conduit to which they come together, or maybe they the introduction to each other. But after that, can they find commonalities in their life? Loving or having someone they loved, having hopes for a child for the future. It's those things that bring them together that I think service the film best and what I was most interested in. Yes, the boxing scenes are terrific. I mean, Omar Chapado, who is a co-star trained three or four months to get in the ring and look like it. He looks like he can do it, but it's how you can sometimes open up to someone you don't know that well. But there's just something so sense about him in essence that says, yeah, this guy probably has traveled the same life or is traveling the same life that I travel. Let me talk to him a little bit. And I just think it's portrayed so beautifully in this friendship between, first of all, two males having this uh, having this uh, friendship. But again, an older gentleman and a younger uh, a Mexican boxer having this uh, relationship. It's possible. It's absolutely possible. Yes, absolutely. As we are talking more about racial issues in our society and we're understanding more in terms of seeing each other's humanity. That is very, very important. Right. And I'm wondering kind of with Seventh and Union, what do you feel having worked on this that really makes it really unique? What makes it, well coming right now, anything with racial overtones makes it unique. I mean, right now because of our racially charged year of 2020 and Black Lives Matter and the murder of George Floyd, I think everyone is looking for some sort of pathway now, at least those of good conscience. How do we bridge that gap? How do we find a way to connect with each other? The things that were started, this national conversation that's going on now, this soul searching that's going on now in terms of how do we dismantle white supremacy and white power in a way that it equalizes the playing field for LGBTQ, for women, for people of color. I think it's a whole collective that we're looking at now. So the, so the boxing is really just a microcosm of the, the kind of turmoil our society is going in. But how do we breach that? Those who have been marginalized, who have not had a voice, 
how do we give the, how do we treat begin to treat them now? How do we live up to our highest ideals and actually embrace them as fully informed citizens? And that's sort of the uh, and as you said, the boxing match last week had racial overtones. So what is this about this race thing that we never grappled with that seems to have a, we have a little window now? To, to step in and go, well, let's go further. Tulsa Massacre, let's go further. Let's bring up those things we want to bury and not look at, but actually actually have a conversation about them. Yes, it's gonna be awkward, it's gonna be a little strange, it's gonna be a little hard, but to not have a conversation, to live in denial of it, well, then people begin to come in like our last president, like number 45, and play on those fears that we have with someone taking something away from me or getting more better treatment than I am. If you don't talk about those things, if you don't admit those things, you can never reconcile. We'll never be a nation that can reconcile the racial division unless we talk about those things. Absolutely, you know, we need to bridge that gap and address that us them kind of narrative that we've been fed, especially over the last four plus years. It's been rough. <laughs> four years have been rough. Wow. Seriously, you know, but the good thing is, hey, we got to see who a lot of people were. We always kind of knew, but once they, you know, took their hoods off, so to speak, right. we got confirmation. And look, so, we elected Biden and Harris. I mean, again, it's you know, democracy is fragile. I never believed it was as fragile as I saw it in the last four years, particularly on that day, that infamous day of January sixth. I've never seen democracy is fragile as that, but somehow, and I get—I guess I'm saying half full rather than half empty. Somehow we pulled through and got two individuals for presidency and vice presidency and made some records then, even with Kamala Harris being the first woman of color to be elected VP. So there is hope, God knows there is hope. It's, sometimes it just seems like when we see blue murders on television, but somehow there is hope for this, uh, this, this experiment called democracy. There really is hope for it. Yes, it's definitely an experiment and you're right. It is very, very much a thing of hope. Um, and you know, as we kind of talk about hope and people having something to cling to, it also brings up kind of the emotional trauma, mental health. And I know that there is an emotional family trauma that's underlying uh, Seventh and Union that gets discussed. And so I was wondering, how did you all kind of draw on that mental health uh, arena and how we deal with trauma? You know, it's. It's part of, you kind of go to a dark place, you kind of go to a place that you don't want to go. But that's sort of acting. Acting is always encouraging people or actors to go to places that you want to leave buried. So any sort of trauma, you know, it's best to say, okay, this is something buried, this is something I can bring up. And I must say my co-star Omar Chaparro and I, we worked really hard to form a friendship to each other, form and find out things about each other's families. Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? What's my trauma? Well, being the only black kid in a lot of schools and being the only one that was socially mobile, I was made fun of, I was called the N-word. I mean, even discussing those traumas just bonded us because it felt, it felt like we realized, oh, your trauma is very unique to you, but it's not unique to the experience of people of color. So that was a commonality we had right off the bat by facing head on and facing those things that we'd rather not talk about. No, I don't want to talk about my childhood the time I was barred from this or barred from that or called the N-word. But in acting, you do want to bring those things up because you can mind them. But for everyone's, for everyone's betterment, you can mind those things. Yes, it's definitely a part of our individual journeys and it definitely can be helpful in our craft. And I know there's been a lot of talk of race and with that, the thought of cancel culture. And that seems to be an issue for a lot of individuals who are being held accountable for their actions in the past. How do you see this playing out in terms of actors? 
Well, this is what I would like to see. Everyone wants to talk about casting in front of the camera. Everyone wants to, well, okay, now it's probably we're going to open up casting. I think what we what we need though, we need more we need more DPs. We need more people in boardrooms. We need more decision making apparatuses than we do. We tend to bridge the or what's happening with diversity, inclusion, and education in the industry. We talk about the casting, who's in front of the camera, those actors and actresses. God bless them; they're wonderful, they're talented. But we don't have enough conversation. Which I would like to focus on. Which is in the boardrooms. I mean, what is your board made of? Is diversity there? Those are the ones who hear the stories in green light, whether that thing was going to go forward or not. And if you don't have some diversity represented there, again, LGBTQ, women, BIPOC individuals, then those films are not going to be made. They're not going to get the green light. That's when we need the power. And seeing Seeing us in those positions, like last year, the Academy of Arts and Sciences, maybe two years ago, now we have a, a African American female as the head of it. That's a seismic change. That's a seismic change. That's where we have to focus on. Not just one, one very important, the small area of acting in front of the camera, but everything that encompasses filmmaking and those decision making positions are incredibly powerful. I know wasn't Regina King said that she would not in her production company that at least fifty percent of her crew, and I might be misquoting this, but the intent is. 50% of the crew will now be made up of women or people of color. I mean, that's 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 major. That's major to get out of these crafts, the old boys network, and start bringing in people who, who will work as hard, just want an equal chance. So that's what I see as being where I would love for us to head, and not just talking about casting, but equity in a lot of positions. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it seems to be very much a reality that even though now we are seeing more diversity in front of the camera, it's about behind the camera and making those decisions. Because also, even if you do get something greenlit, you know, the person may not necessarily have the background, the perspective, the diversity to bring to the table to uh, essentially tell the story in a way that is authentic and true. And so. Too often do we see things where we see white saviorism or, or exactly. And these kind of things that really make you just, it's, it's very disappointing. Um, yeah, and I know a lot of people felt that way with uh, the Green Book and how that played out. And the thing is we need more people in rooms to have these conversations and discussions so we don't see the same thing again and again. Authentic voices, pardon me, for, but you need authentic voices there that can maybe weigh in and, and have a cross section of people talking. Well, you know, the, why doesn't that ring true? Because but if everyone is gonna green light it, then forget We'll never get the kind of diversity that we're looking for. Absolutely. And so, Greg, we just have about a minute left, but I know 7th and Union is set to come out soon. And so, can you please tell our viewers where they can find more about it and also when they can see it? Well, you can see it. We'll be released sometime in 2022. Uh, you can write me at Instagram at uh, official Greg Daniel on Twitter at at real uh, at real Greg Daniel, and on my Facebook would be uh, at actor Greg Daniel. That way, I'll have everything plastered about the film and where it will be if you go to those uh, those media uh, spots tomorrow. Absolutely fantastic! Thank you so much, Greg, Thank for joining you. us today and for sharing all of your insights. We really Thank appreciate you for it. engaging me in this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Now joining me is the co-creator of The Daily Show, and she happens to also be the founder and chief creative officer of Abortion Access Front, Liz Winstead. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Liz, you've been in the political satire world, and now you are fighting for abortion access. And we've seen it be attacked on all levels, especially coming out of the Supreme Court. What is something that you really want people to know right now? You know, when you that's a question that's so hard because there's so many things. I think one of the first things that I want folks to understand is that 
abortion legislation is coming through states and it's a lot of it is model legislation that's been crafted by interest groups, federal anti-abortion groups who drop it in states that a have friendly anti-abortion people in these legislatures to sail it through. And also states that are in lower courts that will push it through if it's challenged constitutionally to get it to the Supreme Court. We saw this happen in Mississippi where just last week the state of Mississippi, the Supreme Court weirdly granted the state of Mississippi a hearing on a law that was passed and shut down twice by lower courts saying this law is a clear violation of Roe v. Wade, a clear violation of a person's constitutional right to access to abortion. And the Supreme Court said, hmm, we really don't care, we're gonna hear it anyway, which is a direct threat to Roe v. Wade. The Mississippi, the Mississippi law says if you, you, that you can't access abortion after 15 weeks. Uh, 24 weeks is what Roe v. Wade had stated is the law of the land and everyone's constitutional guaranteed right. So if the this Supreme Court decides that this Mississippi law can be upheld, there's already 11 states that have something called a trigger ban, which means that if it goes into effect, they will ban abortion within 24 hours of that state with states, more states looking at the Supreme Court taking this law and having that be a signal that they want to get trigger bans in place as well. It's a pretty scary time that we're in and Roe v. Wade is very, very, very close to being overturned. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds very, very much the case to be a very scary place to be. You know, we feel like we're so close to being hand handsmaids, and it's it's also very strategic the way they seem to be doing it. Like Mississippi passing these laws that are clearly running afoul of Roe, but they, it seems they're trying to take advantage of the conservative majority on the Supreme Court. So, what do you think that the average citizen can do if they want to perhaps change the course of how this could potentially, you know, turn out? I think it's super, super crucial that as we watch these states, and it's states, it's really not federal legislation. As we watch these states passing these laws, it's really up to all of us to make sure that A, let's get this Voting Rights Act signed so that we don't have elections that are just being thrown to a conservative majority and having them challenge it when they don't like the outcome, and really, really making sure that in your state, that A, you are working to get anti-abortion folks out of office and B, really celebrating the people who fight against it because they need to hear from you when you are like, I vote on this issue and thank you for standing up for my rights because it's thankless to fight for it, it's thankless to vote for it. But also talk to your friends and neighbors because this is an issue that is going to probably never go away, but can be mitigated by changing hearts and minds. We've seen it with marriage equality and we've seen it with LGBTQ rights. We need to take the same tact with abortion rights. Everybody knows somebody who's had an abortion, everybody loves somebody who's had an abortion. We need to talk about abortion and start recentering it to its proper place in a conversation, which is an ethical choice that someone might make. Um, it is part of their reproductive care in their lifetime. And if we don't, then we're constantly going to be battling the stigma and being on the defensive rather than saying, let's normalize abortion, let's talk about it, let's make sure everyone has access to it.
Yes, it's very kind of disheartening since we know that historically abortions, they were normalized at a certain point in time. But then, you know, hey, we've seen these shifts and these changes and now we see one even more aggressively. And why do you think that people are taking such a strong stance against it and trying to tear it down? I mean, I would say um, white supremacy being the foundation of our culture, um, when you give everyone access to their full potential, uh, that is a massive crack in a white supremacist system. And that means that those who have not had their say or not been able to live their full destiny are able to choose to do so. Um, that's terrifying to this structure that we're in. Also, it's always so surprising to me because I think they're terrified that somehow we would treat them the way we have treated them. And it's like, if we wanted to disempower you, we would have. The problem is we just want to live. We all just want to live. So how about that for an idea? We just want to live. But that's that's a threat to you know the mediocre racist that has been handed so much just to live in the world. Yeah, definitely the white male patriarchy has a bit of problems and the desire and kind of this push to control someone's sense of personal autonomy as a way to keep a control over them. It really also seems to intersect with a lot of racial issues we have today. As we know, abortions will, if they become inaccessible, will largely hurt women of color and individuals who have children, persons of color. And so we will see that impact there. And so is there anything that you're doing in particular to target uplifting the issue in terms of the impact that it has on the BIPOC community? I mean, we always center those who will be affected most. And I think that what we do in our organization, which has been an incredibly rewarding thing is we started a mutual aid program where we're teaming up folks with clinics and activists on the ground giving them what they need. So teaming up like groups of friends and other organizations and individuals who people start the mutual aid list and we help fulfill them. And the other thing that we do, and now that COVID's over, we're gonna get back out on the road, but we do these comedy and music shows. And then throughout the show, it's like this really amazing variety show. And then within the show, we we interview the local activists on the ground and the, and the clinics who are providing the care so that we can showcase the work that those folks are doing to our audiences. And then people can learn about how they can take action with the BIPOC led organizations that are on the ground doing the work. And that has been the most, one of the most rewarding things that we do in the work. So it's like getting people involved and getting people involved with organizations that have BIPOC leadership so that they know exactly what needs to be done to help the people who are affected the most. That is really awesome. Yes, definitely making that change and targeting it where it can truly resonate is very big. And I know with Abortion Access Front, this is something that you founded and created. What made you want to get involved, especially since you had been more in the satire element? I think for me, you know, first of all, I'm somebody who's had more than one abortion and it helped me stay on the path of what I wanted to do. And and making sure that right is available to somebody else was crucially important. But also because I'd seen how using humor to drag hypocrisy for filth worked really well. And then when I saw that this issue was even within progressive spaces, like, can we not talk about that? You know, it's a little polarizing. I'm like, it's all polarizing. So you wanna know what? Now 
I just want to be able to bring what I've seen work in other areas that I've cared about to reproductive health rights and justice so that people could see the bad guys and also see the intersections because the, the folks who are out, out, in the, out in front of clinics are the same folks who were at the Capitol during the insurrection, the same folks who are carrying their guns, the same anti-masking people, the same people trying to steal your vote, the same white nationalist organizations. The intersections are so great to be able to just expose to folks who might not see those intersections as well is really, really key. Yes, it is um, definitely bringing that to the forefront. And uh, we only have a few minutes left, but in terms of moving forward in the broader scheme of things, in terms of our world in general, what is on the forefront? What's coming up next for Liz Winstead? What's coming up next for Liz Winstead is uh, we are launching a show this fall, which I'm really excited about a YouTube weekly YouTube show that's going to be basically a fun version that talks about issues of patriarchy, misogyny, abortion access um, called Feminist Buzzkills Live. Um, so you can go to our Facebook uh, or our YouTube and subscribe now. Uh, and we are going to be relaunching our tour and we're also doing a daily show 25th anniversary reunion that's to benefit abortion access front with the original cast and, the, and Madeline Smithberg, my co-creator and I talking about the origins of the show as we hit the 25th anniversary. That is absolutely fantastic. I love this, it's super exciting. And can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media? Yeah, I am at Liz Winstead on all the socials. I spell my name with two Z's, but that's where I am, at Liz Winstead. Awesome, thank you for joining us, Liz. Thank you so much, pleasure to be here.